Hello, and welcome to New Jersey is the World. Hello, and welcome to New Jersey is the World. My name is Chris Gethard. Very proud to help bring this to you during this fine New Jersey summer. It's a fine New Jersey summer. It's got me out here thinking about summer vacation. You know, we've had a couple very young fans along the way check in. If you've been listening from the beginning, you know Maya and Hannah have from time to time left us voicemails with their dad. And we recently got one. I wonder where they're going on their summer vacation. Hi, it's Scott calling again with daughters Maya and Hannah. Scott's originally from Montville. Uh, Maya is age seven. Hannah is age three. And we are... We live uh, near Boston now, and we've called in before, and we are getting ready to visit Montville. Right, girls? Yeah. What are we going to do when we go to New Jersey? Swim. Swim. What else? Swim more. What else? Sleep. Sleep. We're going to swim, swim, and sleep? Yeah. Is there anything that you want to do that maybe we can't do here? Swim. Swim? Okay. I, I see where this is going. So we're going to call back after our trip on our way back and let you know how it goes. Bye. Wow, a summer vacation to New Jersey. Interesting. wonder how that's going to go. I wonder if we're going to hear the update at the end of this very intro. I bet that we are. But guess what? First, I'm going to let you know that you're about to hear an episode where we talk about another great summer tradition, the summer reading list. Remember that in school? get that. You'd find out who your next year's teacher is. They'd give you this list. You got to read all these books. And when you were real little and you still loved learning and it had appeal to you, you'd like go to the library and get them all and you'd read them throughout the summer and it would be this joyous thing. And then as you got older and you realized that school is lame and sucks, you'd just put it all off and you'd read like 19 books in the last 72 hours before school began. Remember that summer reading list? We got one for you. We're discussing New Jersey books, New Jersey authors, books that talk about New Jersey. And I'm sure we have missed so many. 973-780-4660. Leave us a voicemail if you want to let us know what's on your New Jersey reading list. Things that evoke New Jersey to you. The authors who maybe we don't know about. The ones who we, we mentioned but haven't actually personally read. This episode is a... Uh, pretty fun breakdown of things we've read along the way that you might like as well and I would love if it led to an actual New Jersey book club over there on our Patreon I bet somebody will start one up patreon.com slash New Jersey's the world thanks to everybody who's been checking it out thanks to everybody who enjoyed New Jersey the role playing game episode 2 last week and that and a lot more coming at you a lot more coming at you including a new little mini series where myself and the great Andrea Quinn uh, talk about South Jersey specifically she knows a lot about it I know a little bit less. But in the meantime, enjoy your New Jersey summer reading list. Enjoy letting us know about all the authors, all the books that deal with Jersey that you love, that we might not know about. And hey, let's go, uh, let's go ahead and check in with Maya and Hannah. Hear how their New Jersey summer vacation went. Hi, this is Scott, originally from Montville, but now living outside of Boston. And I'm here with my daughters, Maya, who's age seven, and Hannah, who's age three. And we just came back from a trip to visit family in New Jersey. We saw Grandma and Grandpa in Montville, and we saw um, aunts and uncles and cousins in, boy, where was it? Westfield, Milburn, um, Somerset, and we even made a stop in West Orange. Do you guys want to say anything about what you saw in New Jersey? 
No. I, I saw a deer in New Jersey. You saw a deer in New Jersey? Did we go anywhere interesting? Yeah. Where? Where did we go in New Jersey? In the pool. In the pool? Was it a good pool? No, we didn't go in it because it was raining. Oh, yeah. One of the pools was closed, so we didn't go in it. Maya, anything from you? She's shaking her head now. So that's what we have to report about New Jersey. Thanks. There must be something in the water in West Orange I preach such avant-garde kids are gonna start shit In parks where we spit arson and sparks splits Essex County, America's armpit Carnival! Oh boy, that flea market, I bought a crossbow there And I imagine it was sort of a two Roman legions charging at each other uh, Intertown fighting Some people have been there in the middle of the night to whip pumas with belts The last time I got in a fist fight, I threw a carton of Clinton's orangeade at a man's face I'm gonna take it to this terrible crime-ridden city and then I'm gonna pull my pants what? down on it No, I've never had a hoogie in my life Or a grinder This is like a weird vortex that doesn't apply to the laws of time and space as I know <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Woe Town, a podcast where a bunch of people who grew up in New Jersey talk about New Jersey because they need something to talk about, and also because New Jersey's pretty great. Mike D, how you doing tonight? I'm like Buster Poindexter, <laughs> feeling hot, hot, hot. Bonaduce, how you been? Um, pretty good, been better. The heat kind of got to me today, but um, I drank enough fluid to pee, so that's a positive thing. Good. Good. Happy to hear that. That's uh, a very important thing. Very important thing. Stay hydrated. Stay hydrated, America. It's going to be a hot one. Now, you both have mentioned the heat. Obviously, we were recording this in the summer. We will be releasing this in the summer. We've had a number of episodes that I think really tie into the summer. Obviously, the Jersey Shore is a very big deal in New Jersey. So we've had kind of a uh, Memorial Day explosion of summer content and food reviews and whatnot. And we are continuing that. Tonight, with our summer reading list, tonight we discuss the best literature by New Jersey people about New Jersey. I will go ahead and say that I am the first one to admit, and I'm not even putting myself down. I can be very self-deprecating. I look smarter than I am. I'm uh, small and I have glasses. I'm not the most well-read person, though. I'm not going to uh, claim I am. I'm a little intimidated uh, this this uh, this episode because... Nick, I wonder if you'd agree with me when you say Mike D is one of the most well-read people I know in real life, by far, I would say. Um, yeah, but like you know what? I've known that my like whole life, and like uh, Mike Mike D, it's just like he's the first kid I knew that was like always reading a book, and then like I, I was always interested, so I'd make him like tell me all about it afterwards. So for me, it was like getting cliff notes for like really good stuff. And uh, but yeah, no, uh, same thing. I I was never a big reader. But I I did go through like one crazy like military history like period from my youth and uh, specifically like Vietnam. So if you ask me any questions about Vietnam and mm -hmm. the relationship to New Jersey, like I, I might be able to help you with that. But besides that, no, I was a terrible reader. Just read for school, often didn't read. Tried to either watch the movie or uh, get the cliff notes, and then get in trouble and fail my tests. I know when uh when I when I texted out, hey, here's what we're doing tonight. You wrote back right away and say, do car buyer magazines count? And I said, yes, I've been racking my brain thinking about comic books that take place in New Jersey. So you and I, same page. So I think, Mike D, I don't want to put too much pressure on you, but I will pass the ball to you and say, 
as a person who is is definitely the most well-read among us, New Jersey, the literature that comes out of it, the literature that's set here, when, when you think the broad strokes of how, these, how this topic ties together with our state, what comes to mind? I think there's two... There's two kinds of books about... Well, okay. New Jersey has a very long literary history, and there's all kinds of historic things. But I think when people think about books from New Jersey, there's really two categories they fall into. There is the self-told story, the Philip Roth, Juno Diaz, Judy Bloom type of story. And then there's this other really interesting sort of nature strain of New Jersey literature that is absolutely massive. So, you know, people who've written about the Pine Barrens and people who write about hiking and tracking and all these different things in New Jersey. So I feel like it falls into those two broad categories. And then there's also a bunch of interesting, more random cultural stuff. There's tons of good music literature from New Jersey too. So those are the thing. But I think if you had to break it down, I think the the big literary giants of New Jersey, I think, are Philip Roth, Judy Bloom, Amiri Baraka, uh, Juno Diaz, and William Carlos Williams. And I kind of want to throw Walt Whitman in there, but really Walt Whitman wrote a lot of his stuff when he was actually living in Brooklyn and he was kind of an old man when he came to Camden. So I'm not, I want to claim Walt Whitman because you know, I love him and I've actually randomly quoted him on this podcast several times already. During our role playing game. Yes. Your character, Shihan, the Nutley karate uh, studio owner did recite large, large chunks of Walt Whitman during our adventure. Thanks to everybody on the Patreon who has signed up to witness our idiotic role playing game. Uh, I was wondering, because I did, I went through the outline and noticed there wasn't what, much Whitman love. I think I actually added him after you did your peasant. I'm very shocked by that. But of course, it's because you know the location of where each of his individual poems was written. Of course. Well, that's true. And I think when we were talking about summer reading for New Jersey, I wanted everything that we talked about to either be by someone who New Jersey could really own or the book was actually really about New Jersey and set in New Jersey. And there was so much there, I figured it was a good way to narrow it down that we could be really harsh about what we were talking about by cutting some people out. I also do want to say, and, and I give great credit to this type of writer, the more, um, like... Uh, I, I, like this is not your Philip Roth who was always rumored to be like, is he going to stay alive long enough to get the Nobel Prize? You know, this is not Juno Diaz who won a Pulitzer, but you do also have to point out more in the sort of like um, general population, paperback off the shelf, airplane novels. You also do, I don't know that we'll talk about them too much because I haven't read anything by them. I know my mom reads a lot of Harlan Coben and really likes that he sets all his adventures in Livingston. It's a, he grew up in Livingston and main character, I believe is in Livingston in those books. And then Janet Ivanovich, who I feel like if you've ever gone through a Hudson books in a train station or airport, you've seen a Janet Ivanovich novel up on the bestseller list. One of the best selling authors of our lifetime and, uh, grew up in South river and, all her, her main series of books that have just sold like a hundred million copies are all about uh, a female detective in Trenton. Um, so I do want to say, I don't know how much we'll discuss. I don't know if you've read any of them, but do have to immediately also say 
you know, you put them up there with like the Stephen Kings and the Jody Picots and those people who are just constantly writing books and selling a ton. Jersey's also got two of the heaviest hitters from that world too. Who's that? Well, the only reason that I didn't include uh, Coben and Ivanovich were I haven't read any of their books. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But I will say, in general, having worked in the book industry, if you see an author's book on a kiosk in an airport or a train station or a Hudson News, that means that they are absolutely selling bazillions of books and are extremely well-loved and popular because... you more or less have three or four hours in one of those kiosks. And if you don't sell out the first time, they don't restock you. And that is an actual fact wow. of how books are sold in transit kiosks. And I also have to say too, there's when I'm saying like, this isn't Juno Diaz or Philip Roth. I also think anybody who listens to this podcast also knows that I don't care. And actually somebody who sells a bajillion books, writing like romantic mystery novels to me, hero, the best, I think Stephen King, his book on writing actually is one of the most brilliant things. And so much of it is just about like, yeah, I don't think they're giving me a Pulitzer for writing a book about a giant dog attacking people, but I sit down, I put on my music, I write, it's my job, I'm a craftsman, let's go. And I'm proud to have two super heavy hitters from that world. Because also as someone who has written three books, a thing people don't understand about the publishing industry that I did not know until I was writing books I was in this constant panic of like, oh, they're giving me money and I'm so scared I'm not going to earn the money back. And my agent was like, something like 85 to 90% of books lose money in a massive way. Bomb. And then they all just pray they get the next J.K. Rowling. So if you're Harlan Coben or Janet Ivanovich, you're probably also, your success is probably supporting the careers of dozens and dozens of other less successful writers because the publishing company is staying in business because of you. So those people are heroic in their accomplishment. Let me be clear about that. It's probably more lucrative now. I mean, you guys would know because you're kind of in that world, but it's probably more lucrative now because more people are buying like a digital copy so they don't have to like even print however many original copies if it like doesn't sell or whatever they go to who knows where. You would think so. You would think the publishing company would go, hey, let's like lean into digital. No, they still want to, they still want to just overspend on hardcovers. It's really. It's like they must, I guess they do well with like Audible and all those other things. Like, so that could be. Yeah, for sure. For sure, it helps. And Big hit. as someone who wrote uh, two books that did like okay and one that bombed horrifically, I was <laughs> which, told, one bombed? which one bombed horrifically? The most recent, Lose Well, the most recent one, it bombed bad. Uh, and my agent was like, Yeah, don't worry about it. And I was like, But they, that was when my career was at a point where they actually like gave me real money to do it. And he's like, Happens every day. Like most books bomb. It's just, can we, can someone, can we just please discover the next Stephen King? That's how they all stay in business. It makes no sense, but we got some heavy hitters in Jersey. Just wanted to make sure I got those out there as well, though we haven't read them. So where should we start? I was thinking maybe because we got a big list you put out there, Mike T. I was actually thinking maybe one interesting thing would be if each of us, and this can be a book from any corner of the written word, if the three, if you had to pick one where you go, you know what, if, if we're really making a New Jersey summer reading list and we're each adding just one book to it, what would your one book on the New Jersey summer reading list be? I know mine. Maybe I can start, give you guys a moment to think. Uh, oh, if it had to be a New Jersey book? for just, the, Yeah. It, for, oh, I know mine right away. Mine, I'm going to say, because uh, Philip Roth, 
Uh, I haven't read a ton of his stuff, but I've read a decent chunk. I mean, I've, I've actually probably read 10 of his books, but he's written so many books. Um, Portnoy's Complaint, obviously, is brilliant and perverted. And the first one I heard about, it felt like it was bad to read it. It's great. The Great American Novel about the fictional baseball league is awesome. And then, of course, you've got American Pastoral and Human Stain, all those ones that everybody was like, oh, this guy's like one of, you know, that's when it was firmly established, just everything he puts out. Read it. But I'm going to go ahead and say, he has a book, and um, it's actually it's, it's got three or four stories in it. But the first chunk of it is the title story. It's a novella, Goodbye Columbus. I remember I read that. I took it out from the West Orange Public Library, either first year of college or tail end of high school when I first heard that Philip Roth was a guy from Essex County. I do not know if you're ever going to read anything that sums up what makes New Jersey tick more than that book? Because the premise of that story is so simple. It's a Jewish kid from the Wequaic section of Newark starts dating a Jewish girl from Short Hills, which are it's probably a 20-minute drive, and it's just all about how he cannot ever feel comfortable dating this rich girl, even though they come from such similar backgrounds and they're so far away in so, you know, like they're so physically close. They're both from Jewish families. And yet they, he feels like such an alien, the descriptions of walking out of a certain type of neighborhood and walking into another type of neighborhood is a feeling that I would wager everyone in New Jersey knows that feeling. Uh, there are some great hilarious lines that you don't understand how funny they are unless they grew up here. But the main character works in the Newark public library and says how the people from all the different towns are pretty great to deal with, except the fucking kids from Montclair are so stuck up, made me laugh. I couldn't, when I was like a early twenties, late teens reading that, I could not believe someone wrote a book calling out Montclair kids for being kind of pretentious, annoying people. Um, love to Montclair, but there's truth to it. If you grew up around here. And I just think it's the most New Jersey story. Like being from down the hill, West Orange, it's exactly what we talk about on the show. This feeling of being in a room with up the hill kids, being, being the down the hill kid who was friends with the up the hill kids in high school, I felt like I wanted to crawl out of my fucking skin sometime. And everybody has it. All over New Jersey, there's somebody from Patterson who fell in love with a girl from fucking Woodland Park. There's a guy from Trenton who dated a girl from Hamilton. There's somebody from Camden. There's a girl from Camden who is dating somebody from some South Jersey town that had money. Like New Jersey, I actually just saw on Facebook, a friend of mine from high school summed it up where he said, the, the place where we grew up, it's where poverty and privilege bash into each other every day. And it ties into all the racial issues in America. It ties into feminism. It ties into homophobia. It ties into classism. It's why New Jersey is so fascinating, I think, at its core. And that book, I've never seen anything in a more simple, clear-cut way explain what it's like to grow up in a place where class conflict is just, you are going to see it every day somehow. It's brilliant. That's what I would put. Goodbye, Columbus. That's my selection for the overall list. I think I've rambled enough to give uh, Nikki Bonaduce time to think. Well, all I know is like I'm going to have a really good reading list after this and feel better about myself in September when I can say that I read like three or four books. Like, yeah, I started reading books and, you know, sit on the beach and enlighten myself because, I don't know, I never do that anymore. And I feel like listening to an audio book is kind of like cheating, even though I think like, you know, somebody's like telling a story and it's like nice. Like, I enjoy that. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but... um. 
Uh, so a couple years ago, I'd been living down. I lived down in Southern Ocean County for 13 years, almost 14 years now. And I really didn't know much about the area. And finally, like my kids were kind of like old enough to like start going out and like exploring. And I know the Pine Barrens is like full of great places, blah, blah, blah. You know, we had some adventures down there, like in our like later te- uh, teens, early 20s. So um, Southern Ocean County has a great library system. So I went there and started looking for like books about the Pine Barrens. And there's this one like classic, really well-known book. And like you were saying, like we're so accustomed to like North Jersey and like I camped my whole life and did scouting and stuff and was exposed to like the wilderness, but never like the Pine Barrens. There, yeah, that's it. Mike T is holding up a copy of the Pine Barrens by John McPhee. Is that the field guy one? Which one is that? This is the uh, the, the non-field guide one. The one oh. that's like the... The real like stories and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Sorry. So that's the book. I had the I had the field guy one because I really enjoyed that because it had like all the uh, flora and fauna. And that's where I learned way too much about the blueberry industry in New Jersey and like how it became <laughs> like what it became and like how they bred and stuff. Like so I found that like really intriguing. Then just these like great little stories about people who populated the areas and what they did to like make a living, like a chicken farmer telling the story of like, you know, raising chickens there and how that worked and blah, blah, blah. And then just like this culture that's like very, very, very like, um, like foreign to me. Like I know, I know that kind of history is there, but it was nice to find out the details about it. Like when I'm driving around, like in the middle of like nowhere, like there's more going on than like, you know, and there's a lot of crazy history down here. So I think as in like respect to South Jersey, and the Pine Barrens takes up such a large portion of it. And it's kind of like this, like, you know, mysterious place to like a lot of people who maybe just drive through it to go down the shore or something, you know, um, definitely worth checking out. It's a great book, man. The Pine Barrens by John McPhee's. It is. That's one that all three of us have read. All three of us. I read that yep. one as part of a college class on New Jersey. And uh, it really, it, it, it's wild to be from the northern half of the state where we have all these like, you know, sort of like playful slash fake slash sometimes real feuds between North and South Jersey. And then you read a book about it where you go, oh, I, it's actually the issue between us is that it's such a different world that we don't understand it and they don't understand us. And it's like beautiful and hidden. And that book makes you realize how much the Pymerans have kind of retained a culture unto the Pine Barrens themselves. Great book. I split it into two factions and it happens like right around like maybe north of Tom's River, whatever. When you actually enter the Pine Barrens, people down here are softwood. We're hardwood people. Listen, we got pine <laughs> trees up north, but down here predominantly it is like pine trees. So we have like, we have great like, you know, open space in North Jersey and there's like lots of wilderness and lakes and stuff like that. But it's totally different feel like when you're walking through or totally surrounded by predominantly like one type or two types of like, you know, uh, like pine trees. And, like when you see like an oak or whatever, like you're like, oh, it's like so weird. <laughs> Mike D, if we have a top three choices on the reading list, we've now got Goodbye Columbus, Philip Roth. We've got The Pine Barrens by John McPhee. And we're going to round it out with? Both of those are amazing books. I think I'm going to go with not just my favorite New Jersey book, but one of my all-time favorite books that I've, I've read so many times. I'm going to go with Clockers by Richard Price. Clockers is a 
genius piece of writing. So it's about a fake city called Dempsey, but it's actually about Jersey City, down to the point where the way he describes different streets and the projects and the officers on the police force, all these things match up. I mean, it is Jersey City. Richard Price has has said this before. And I think Clockers is such a great summer read because one, even if you don't care one iota about New Jersey, it's just an amazing crime story from beginning to end that is very human, right? Because you get the side of the story that is from a kid who grew up in the projects and he's a drug dealer. And then you also get the other side of the story from a police detective who isn't really that into his job and kind of sees like, this isn't really what he wants to be doing with his life. And these two, two stories come together. And the little details that Richard Price brings into the story, right? The way that the interaction between both the, you know, Strike, who's the main the main guy, and then, um, you know, Rocco, who's the police detective, the way they both interact with people in the bodega, just the way he writes this, you get so many little details about life in New Jersey that are completely perfect. And one of the things that I love so much about this book is, you know, Strike, who, who's the guy, he, he doesn't want to be in this life. And because of all the anxiety he has from being in this life of selling drugs, he has terrible stomach problems. And what does he do to alleviate his stomach problems? He drinks yoo he constantly drinks Yoohoo because someone in his life has told him like, oh, Yoohoo's got milk. It's going to help soothe your stomach. And, you know, he drinks it. So just those little details to me, that is the most New Jersey thing you can possibly imagine. And I don't know that there's a better crime writer writing in the last, you know, 40 years than Richard Price. I mean, he wrote episodes of The Wire. Um, I mean, he's just that guy and he knows both sides of the story, which is why I think that's what makes Clocker so different than any other crime novel. There's, there's no good guys. There's no bad guys. There just is a story that happens in New Jersey. And every single page of this is completely riveting from beginning to end. So if you're going to read three books this summer, definitely make Clockers one of these books. I promise you will enjoy it. And if you've seen the film, the film is great. No question, but the book is a completely different thing that I would encourage people to take the time to read. It's amazing. What time period does that take uh, place? Is it like the 80s or something or 70s? It's like the early, maybe like the late 80s, early 90s. It's like slightly, it's it's definitely like pre-cell phone. Okay, um, cool. You know, so it's probably like, yeah, late 80s, early 90s. Now, um, we have a great start there. We also have an outline here. And we mentioned Amiri Baraka, Juno Diaz, a lot of people to talk about. Um, the outline is divided up largely into two sections. And I feel like this episode, we should move fast. Because one thing that I really want is I want to see a lot of uh, comments by the patrons over there with their recommendations. I want to hear voicemails with your recommendations. I could see us doing a whole episode of this that is literally just voicemails of you recommending your New Jersey books to us and we put that out too um so i don't want to belabor too many points although you know we as a crew are known for many attention it's divided (laughs) up into two sections right now um our 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 outline let's start with the books about new jersey that that we really love and then we'll go to the great writers of new jersey and we'll go through it that way um 
Mike D, I feel like we, on the list, we already covered The Pine Barrens by John McPhee. There's a book at the top that uh, I believe you have told me about. And I think, Nick, maybe you as well on a previous episode, if I think, The Tracker by Tom Brown. This is the first one you put up on the list. Is this that guy who runs that... Uh, he lived down the street from me. That survival... He runs a survival school, right? Yes, in Waretown. Tom Brown Jr. is... Um, He's a guy, he's very old now. He was extremely um, famous in the 80s for tracking, or supposedly, I mean, we won't go into what's real or not real here, but uh, for tracking down criminals and being a person who could stalk any man or beast alive. And he wrote this book called The Tracker, which is about how he, you know, grew up and was trained to be able to hunt and stalk anything alive. And the book is completely fascinating. And it talks about from when he's a child about how he learned to roam around the woods and, and, you know, look at broken sticks and see when people pass. And now probably for the last 20 years, he's run this school down by where you live, Nick, where he trains other people to, to become trackers. And it's a great read. It's super short. Um, and it gives a really great look into the extremely rural way of living that at one point was possible in New Jersey and is really no longer possible unless you go to Tom Brown's tracker school. I think like that's like, so when I first moved down there, I was like, who is this? Like I would drive, he lived on this one like main County road. And I think like to fill the gap from what I'd heard from like people who kind of knew him and, and informed me about him. That was like, I guess he also like maybe drove a truck on the side or something like that for like construction, whatever. But um, he always, he always had the school, but like now he's got, um, I think he's had it for a while. He has a, a storefront in the same strip mall that like the post office is in. And like this time of year, I think when he starts the classes up and the curriculum is like pretty intense for where town, there is a strange lot of people like hanging out there. And I, you know, I, I don't care about it. They always like interested, but they kind of look like rainbow people, like lots of like, you know, <laughs> dreaded people they're hanging out there and then like where town you become like basically a target if you're that person and you will definitely probably have the cops called on you or whatever but there was a there's this like crazy story that my one of my neighbors that's like a firefighter down there told me that like he's like building these like huts in like the middle of like the, the you know uh, pine barrens which is like literally right over the parkway you get into like this really massive crazy um uh, area that you can drive in some places, whatever, but you can go in there and like, nobody's going to like find you, whatever. There's like a lot of people kind of living out there. There's like a few known people. You always see them on the road walking in. So I guess he had brought like a lazy boy into like one of those, like, like hooches that he built on the middle of nowhere and like was smoking cigarettes and like fell asleep. And all they saw was like this fire and smoke. So like they have to go out and respond and they have like a, you know, a forest fire unit and like they go out there, he's like nowhere to be found, but there's all they find is this hooch burning and like the frame of like a lazy boy, like inside it. So, you know, nobody ever like really did anything, but, but, uh, yeah, I know that book. He's like, uh, his story's like, he's raised by like this shaman grandfather and, you know, he's like real into it. Last time I saw him, he was right at the parkway exit and he was like cutting Phragmites and like the weird, detention basin like i was driving by i was getting off the ramp and i was like who's that guy and like when he popped up and was walking up the hill he had like these fragmites stalks and then i was like oh 
whatever. He's probably doing something for his clue. It's the tracker. Yeah. And then you drove home and he was clinging to your bumper. <laughs> you didn't even know. I wouldn't be surprised. He had a Rambo knife gripped in his teeth. Um, another writer about New Jersey who I, I bet I'm the only one of the three of us who read it. Maybe not. I can never make assumptions. But uh, a guy, there's a guy named Henry Charlton Beck who back in the day, I mean, this guy, he was a, he was a preacher who used to write he was like a folklorist back in, in like the, he died in 1965. So for decades before that, he wrote a series of books that I've read, Forgotten Towns of Northern New Jersey, Forgotten Towns of Southern New Jersey, one called The Roads of Home, Lanes and Legends of New Jersey. Here's a great title of a book, Jersey Genesis, The Story of the Mullica River. Like this guy Ooh. was all about it. And he writes, it's, it's, it's very anachronistic stuff. I'm not going to lie. At times, it's kind of hard to decipher because he's writing in like a 1930s and 40s style. But um, I used to read them all for Weird New Jersey because he was kind of, and this is not throwing shade towards my old bosses who I love, but like he was kind of Weird New Jersey before Weird New Jersey. Like he'd write a column, you know, in a in the North Jersey book all about like the white pilgrim ghost up in Warren County. And he, you read a lot of his books and you realize these... He, he was writing them almost a hundred years ago and he's writing about these oral traditions that are dying out. So like, we all know, like, like, you know how, like we all know the Ironbound, and a lot of people know there's a neighborhood of, of, of North called the Ironbound, but a lot of our older relatives will call it down neck. And that's something that's dying out. And it's, it's not like something that people are going to be saying in a generation or two. And even we kind of remember that it used to be called that. He knows that about like, he'll use those names about like the smallest town in Sussex County where you go, oh, there's like a street name that indicates this was ever real. And he's writing what that folklore was. So you get to read somebody who's writing in the 1930s about folklore that was probably most prominent in like the 1910s, 1900s, and then see the reflections of it today. Henry Charlton Beck. Definitely someone worth checking out. I'm not going to say you're going to want to sit on a beach and read this stuff for fun, but definitely something to have for cool points on your New Jersey bookshelf. Put that out there. Anybody else want to throw out stuff about New Jersey that jumps out? You know, one book I want to throw out because it's one of the most fascinating New Jersey readings that, that I've discovered. And I don't think it's very, I don't think it's very well known anymore for a similar reason. Um, there's a book called no, no Cause for Indictment by a guy called Ron Parambo. And Ron Parambo was a New Jersey journalist, right? A, a fascinating person. Fascinating guy. I've never read the book, but I've read a lot about, which as you describe it, it will make sense that I have never read the book, but I've read a lot about Ron Parambo because what a psycho. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, d d his whole story is insane. And, and so I, I read the book and, and I, if people want to track this down, I actually, I'll give you my copy because it was so difficult to track down. Um, but he wrote a book called No Cause for Indictment, which is basically a very much, to make an easy comparison, a gonzo Hunter S. Thompson style version of him reporting on the Nork riots, um, you know, in the sixties. Wow. And, and he's very much even at that time on the side of, of social justice and was one of the few journalists to dig into what the actual causes of this were versus the way the story was reported at the time, which was, which was very, very one-sided. And so he digs into this and he writes this book and 
so he's reporting on the Newark riots and he writes this book and he's breaking everything down. And then when he's done writing the book, he continues to keep reporting on this story for such a long time that he's essentially unable to make a living because this is past. And so he decides through all these underworld contacts that he met that he's going to start robbing drug dealers. So he forms this very terrible criminal gang who, and it went terrible in the sense that they are very bad at being criminals. And let's be clear. And they began if I, not to interrupt my tea, but I just want, so for people listening, this is not like a, it's not like, Oh, the, the journalism ran well ran dry. So he started writing this fiction and you're now describing fiction. This became his real life. Yes. He became a, a, he, he went from someone who was a part, he went from someone who was a journalist who wrote this amazing book, No Cause for Indictment, which everyone should read because there's not really another book about what happened in Newark like this, to becoming a part-time journalist and a part-time criminal of robbing drug dealers. And eventually he did so many of these robberies and he was involved in murdering someone and, and he went to jail uh, in New Jersey for murder and choked on an orange and died, um, which is a very weird coda to that story. But this is a, like all that stuff. I mean, he's a fascinating person, but I definitely think this is a book, No Cause for Indictment. Definitely read it because it's just many decades ahead of the way that that people viewed what happened in the 60s in New Jersey. It's not a perfect book, um, and his writing style can be hard to digest at some points because he's very much trying to be gonzo, but it's a great read, and he digs into parts of the story as they happen that you will not read anywhere else. So good one to track down. If you, if you ever see it at a used bookstore, grab it because it's not easy to find. And I doubt they're going to be scrambling to reprint it anytime soon. They're, they're not reprinting it. I'm embarrassed to say how much money I paid for it because it was way too much <laughs> money for a book, but I really wanted it on my, on, in my New Jersey book collection. Let's talk about uh, something that I love that you put on here. One that's, that I actually, because again, I've really slipped. I am not a reader anymore. I read almost exclusively comic books these days. And much to my shrinks, my shrink has, I think, accurately convinced me at this point, you have... ADD and the medication she gives me for it help. So I've switched over to them for my antidepressants. And she's like, when was the last time you finished a book? And I'm like, I don't even know. And she's like, you're too smart a person to not be able to finish a book. That is one of clearly, clearly this ties into your ADD. So we're working on it. We'll get there. But you put a book maybe on Maybe that's, yeah, maybe it's my problem. Who knows? It could be, man. I mean, we, we both <laughs> got a lot on our minds too. Lord knows, Lord knows. No slam dancing, no stage diving, no spikes. Amy Yates Wolfing and Stephen Diladovico. Talk to me, Mike D. Mind blowing book. Actually, I think Bonaduce, I think I gave you my copy of this when I finished it. Which one's that? Um, it's the one about City Gardens. Uh, I think so. It's probably, I have to reclaim it. No, I don't want it back. Like, read it. So, no, I, I have to get it. <laughs> this is a, this is a, a wonderful book. Because it's a completely um, on the ground version of like, so basically this is a story of underground music in New Jersey in the 80s. And they use City Gardens, which we've talked about a whole bunch on this show, 
as the central hub for telling the story. So you get to hear about punk bands. You get to hear about the emergence of metal in New Jersey in the 80s. You get to hear about New Wave. And then you also get to read a bunch about the early um, the early 80s New Jersey nightclub dance culture. And so in this book, you've got the bands, you've got the people running the club, you've got the bartenders. They actually, one of the bartenders was John Stewart. Um, you know, so John Stewart has parts in this book where he's talking about working at city gardens in the eighties. And then they have some really cool interlude sections in the book where they pull back from the story of city gardens and they actually talk about Trenton, um, as a city and, and what was going on in Trenton at that time. So it's like, it's, it's a really fun read about music in New Jersey and does a really great job of positioning, music in sort of a broader cultural space in New Jersey. I loved it. I mean, I read it in, you know, one night because I couldn't stop reading it. So if you want to read about city gardens, go for this one. And it's a great companion piece to the city gardens documentary, which is also absolutely fantastic. Nick, are you sad or relieved that your children will never be able to go to city gardens? Uh, I just think it was like a different time and, you know, (laughs) Will my kids ever be into that kind of like subculture thing and like how much of a subculture really is there anymore? Because you can, I don't know. I I don't know. I guess if something draws you to it as a person, like you're, you know, into a certain type of music, if, you know, my kids listen to like bad radio pop now. Like I listen to like Justin Bieber and like terrible crap like that. Ariana Grande, which, you know, great. They're fantastic artists, whatever. It's just not my cup of tea. But um, I don't know if they'll, I don't know if they'll even have an interest, but would I like them to go there? Yeah. I, I encourage my children to have like all different kinds of experiences and um, I'm raising them to be able to walk into a city gardens experience and hold their own. So I guess, yeah, I wouldn't mind them having that experience. I think it's a, a positive thing to see that kind of like chaos. Mike D, I am, I am very well f- uh, familiar with the tale of Dutch Schultz, who is a gangster who was really like the, when you when you read when you learn about Dutch Schultz and that era of like those gangsters from that you know legendary like like Dick Tracy was parodying like the Al Capone type like prohibition and then into pre-war Dutch Schultz was not just one of the main New York players in that he was like a even amongst gangsters was regarded as sort of this like uncontrollable pit bull that was a fucking problem and a troublemaker. He was eventually killed at the Palace Chop House in Newark. I did not know that William S. Burroughs wrote a book about this. I am not educated enough to know. Maybe I just exposed myself as culturally behind, but I had no idea. <laughs> or <clears throat> this is a, or you wouldn't have exposed yourself as culturally behind <clears throat> because this is a, an extremely obscure piece of writing. And it's just like, I am, you know, you guys know this. I'm obsessed with William Burroughs. I think he's the most underrated, underrated uh, writer of the 20th century. And he actually wrote the 21st century into existence in the 1950s, but that's a a different podcast. (laughs) But so the story about this, I mean, that, that would be a whole three hour Dan Carlin style thing where I talk about this. Tell, tell us about, uh, William S. Burroughs and the relationship to Jane Eyre. Is there one? 
if anyone can make the connection, it's you. That was just a rhetorical question. I think they both. If you so the thing about Jane Eyre and William Burroughs is they both have something in their writing, which is the writing will seem very normal, and something extremely bizarre and weird will come out of the woodwork, and it comes out so hard that people almost miss it. So, for example, in Jane Eyre, there's a scene where all of a sudden Jane Eyre comes into a room and there's a fortune teller and the fortune teller is actually Rochester who's the protagonist of the story in drag dressed up as a fucking fortune teller appearing in his own house and, and, which is the strangest scene in literature and William Burroughs has many moments like that as well so I think they have that strange connection you know between the two and of course I love Jane Eyre my favorite book of all time but so like the last words of Dutch Schultz so like Dutch Schultz gets gunned down at the <clears throat> at the Palace Chop House in Newark, but he doesn't die right away. And this is this is true. So they take him to a hospital in Newark, and there's all these police detectives, and they're like, "Oh, he's not dead yet." You know, we're gonna station a, a detective and a stenographer on the side of his bed, and we're gonna write down everything he said while he's dying because he's babbling and babbling for hours and hours. And we'll see. Maybe we'll be able to solve a crime for this. So they do this and they have a sonographer and I think it takes about like, a, a, you know, almost 24 hours for Dutch Schultz to, to actually die. And he's babbling the whole time. He dies. They have all these transcripts and they, and they put them away somewhere. And at some point they become public record. Later on, William Burroughs gets a hold of these transcripts and decides that he's going to write them into a movie. And the movie never gets made, but the script exists. So the script is this amazing stream of consciousness that is half Dutch Schultz and half William Burroughs' interpretation of a dead New Jersey gangster babbling about all random things on his deathbed. And it's it's short and easy to read, but it's very weird and cool. Like, it's worth the 90 minutes it takes to read it. And we should say, too, I know... Um I, I have I have read some of the transcripts themselves. Also, I know Weird New Jersey has done recordings of them. I think WFMU will sometimes do spoken word renditions of the last words of Dutch Schultz. And they, um, you, you have to understand this is a man who is bleeding out from gunshots, probably toxic shock from bullets still in his body, feverish, hallucinating. So this is not just like mumblings of a guy who's like, I'm not telling you coppers nothing. It's actual... I, I, a, y- you could not take like a scat, an, an aspiring sort of like scat <laughs> stream of consciousness poet could not take hallucinogens that could produce stuff this brilliant. He'll, it'll be stuff where he's just going like the beagles in the bathwater and mommy says, damn, do the dishes. Like, like, like non, <laughs> like nonsense for hours. Like, where if you read it off the page, you assume someone wrote it down wrong until you remember, oh no, this was a person in his, a person who the, they said, let's just, instead of treating him, let's just let police write it all down and ride it out. So he'll just go, uh, the, the pine cones, the pine cones, Matilda, they're on my knees. I feel the burns. And you're like, what, what is going on? And you remember, all oh, right, a dying man. Saying all oh, this insanity, insanity. The Boys from New Jersey, a book that I have, uh, um, I am aware of, have not read, have always wanted to. Uh, another great selection by Mike D for our New Jersey summer reading list. Tell us why. I have a question about this book because I've heard there's this one New Jersey mob book that was like kind of an expose and like for a long time, 
I think it was the one mob family like went around and like bought up all the books. Is this the same book? And the guy who wrote it was like pretty much like marked for death. Hmm. There's a there's a there's an expose about the mob in North Jersey, and it was so detailed and so correct that when it came out, like I'm gonna I'm gonna this guy was but I'll find out the name for you, but I apologize. I wasn't sure if it was this or or, or another one. Like you can't find you can't even find like uh, copies of it anywhere. It wouldn't be this one, Nick, because. The fun, the reason I threw this one on here, because there's a million books about the mob in right. New Jersey, but the funny thing about this one is it's about the Lucchese family, and the pitch is basically the FBI and the federal government bring forth the largest indictment of organized crime that has ever happened. At the time, they're all on trial in Newark. This is the largest organized crime trial that's ever been. And at the end of the trial, the jury deliberates for two days and everyone is found not guilty. And all the mobsters just walk, which is why I think this book is so amusing to read because you've got, you know, 300 pages of, and this happened and this happened and this happened. And then at the end, they're like, not guilty. And everybody, the, you know, the guys walk out and they go get some, uh, you know, cold school and and they, and, you know, and have a nice glass of wine and that's it. And the FBI goes home angry. I know I'm trying to remember the book you're talking about though, where it just disappeared from, from shelves. Yeah. I worked with this guy, Frank, and he's like, I have one copy at home. He's like, remind me to give it to you. And I, I never got it from him, but he said they basically went around, like bought all these books up wherever they could, because it was like, and for whatever reason, I, I can't remember what happened to him. He was, I think he was a made guy and he came out and whatever, one of those things. But like for, for whatever reason, it was like still walking around. Like he didn't get, didn't get hit. I'll find out for you. I apologize for interrupting you, but yeah. No, not at all, man. No, that's, a, that's, that's exactly what we're here for. And I want to, we got to track this down. And I'm sure somebody out there at 973-780-4660 can call in, let us know right away or leave a comment or tweet at us. Whatever, because we want to add that to the list too. And as I said, there's many, many books out there. I'm not the most well-read guy in the, in, on, on, this, uh, in, on this earth, so I need your recommendations on great books as well. I, uh, I see there's one left on the, de- on, the, uh, on the list here. It's On the Devil's Teeth. I wanted to ask you about it. I just reread it. I was wondering if this was... You mean Death on the Devil's Teeth? Yes. I just reread this and... Absolutely. I, I read it a long time ago when it first came out and I just reread it and I liked it even more than the first time I read it. So I was going to ask you what you knew about this because it's a hell of a New Jersey story. Well, I was hoping you were talking about, I, I was hoping that it was Death on the Devil's Teeth. This is by uh, Mark Moran of Weird New Jersey and Jesse P. Pollock. Um, there is a story that would come up again and again at Weird NJ. Um, and it's, it's, it, I've often said when uh, in in relation to my time working there, it's probably the thing I'm proudest of that I worked on because there was a there's an unsolved murder to this day in the 70s of a 16 year old girl named Jeanette Palma who was found uh, in the the woods on top of a quarry in Springfield, just right off of Route 22. Anybody who knows Jersey knows this is like right in your classic like North Jersey here's Springfield here's Westfield Hills Mountainside here's Scotch Plains here's Fen- like all these towns that are sort of like solid middle to upper middle class towns that are all right on top of each other here's Berkeley Heights here's New Providence like Union County 22 and this girl was found and right away there were all these rumors that her body was found surrounded by sticks that were in a cult um, like like in pentagrams and 
Um, the way her body discovered was super macabre. Um, some guy was walking his dog and the dog went nuts and ran off the leash into the woods and came back with a human arm in its mouth. That's true. Um, that's how they even found the body. Was, uh, she was hidden in this very, very hard to find area. And a lot of rumors went around town about who it was. Uh, it seems like a lot of people have long said the police have been kind of evasive. And when I worked at Weird New Jersey, um, this was something that, you know, we first, I remember, published a thing that was just, oh, do you remember the girl who the dog found her arm? And that's how a lot of stuff would happen at Weird NJ. You'd get like one little thing, you might put that in the letters page, and then somebody would write in and go, oh, you're talking about, that's actually Jeanette De Palma. That's like even weirder. The arm thing is the tip of the iceberg. There was all this witchcraft stuff surrounding it. So I went to the Elizabeth Public Library, the the Springfield Public Library and went through all these papers from back then. You find it, man, like their they were their family was a member of like a pretty devoted evangelical church and the preacher from that church was giving all sorts of stuff about Satan and witches have descended on Union County and clearly all it ties into all the satanic panic. And Mark Moran and Jesse Pollock did a really, really great job of just like they turned the story from a magazine story into a, an entire book that just breaks down um, just kind of every piece of info you would ever be able to track down, all these different rumors people are telling about, to the point where they're kind of, they name names in there, man. Like, they name names of, like, sure do. stories could, it could have been this person. I was shocked. I read it. I said, oh, they're going to get sued. And I don't think they did. But like, oh, there was this like itinerant guy who lived in the woods who was a caddy at a golf course nearby, and here's this serial killer from a few towns away, and it could have been him, and here's this other thing. It's a really great book. It was a very intense thing to work on, and I remember, you know, we, we'd get email. I remember getting emails from some members of the De Palma family furious at us for writing about it and other members of the same family writing and saying, thank you so much. Like, we don't understand why the press stopped writing about this. And the police said they lost record, all the records, the Springfield police said all the records were destroyed in a flood. But I think Jesse Pollock, the author of this book, um, just did a freedom of information act specific enough that they managed to actually say, Oh no, we found some of them. So the whole thing's still going. And, uh, one of the more intense unsolved crimes you're going to hear about anywhere. The fact that she was such a young girl from a good town, went to a pretty extreme church, but maybe also was getting into like pot and rock and roll and um, in that era of hitchhiking and where everything was related to Satanism. Again, it's uh, this is not the Philip Roth, Juno Diaz, and this is no offense, Mark is a truly great friend of mine and a mentor of mine. Um, but if you want a book where you just go, holy shit, I cannot believe this happened. I can't believe it happened right in my backyard. I can't believe they're naming names and I can't believe I can drive to these places and look around. Uh, it's a really, really pretty badass, And I, I think ballsy to put it out the way they put it out to name and names. And it reads really well. Like you pick it up and it just reads from front to back like a, you know, like a thriller, like really well put together and, you know, just fun to read. I mean, not fun in the sense of the subject matter, but good read. Didn't it gain like some kind of momentum recently for like 
not, I don't know if they reopened the case or something like that. That was the thing with the Freedom of Information Act was. Oh, okay. So that was the thing that was like the catalyst. Since for the seventies, the Springfield police have said all, there was a flood, there was a hurricane, there was a flood, a whole bunch of records got destroyed and all the Jeanette De Palma stuff got destroyed. And the, the issue a lot of people took with that was this quarry. Um, one of the only other things on that mountain it's, it's, they found her in a place that was really, really hard to hide a body. That's why this idea, the idea of like, oh, maybe she just like was hitchhiking. It was the seventies and she got into a car with a maniac and the maniac dragged her in the woods. It's like, no, this is an area of woods that is hard to get to. And the only other thing on that mountain was a police shooting range, a training range. So it's like, well, that's weird. Yeah. And then there were a lot of rumors that like the police chief's son was kind of obsessed with her or in love with her. And you go, who knows how true that is? Who knows how much that is like a legend that's going to come up in a small town, but apparently, yeah, like the, this kid was kind of protected. So people are going, okay, there's, it's on the same mountain as a police facility, there's these rumors that maybe the town's top cop would want to cover this up and all the records got destroyed in a flood. Like this is adding up to be a lot of stuff all at once. Yeah. Typical. So yeah, just, uh, just, just actually within the past couple months, um, it came out that Jesse Pollock, who I never knew Jesse when I worked at Weird and Jay, I've messaged with him a couple times, but, uh, yeah, he really keeps pounding the pavement and kudos to him. Cause I can tell you from someone who was there, like, helping to construct the building blocks of, of working on this story. Um, man, that it's just very clear that someone knows something. It's one of those ones where as soon as you start looking into it, you go, Oh, everything got out of control and someone's hiding in plain sight. And, um, Nick, yes, sir. just in closing on this topic. Yes. I think you and I can both speak to the fact just in general, death on the devil's teeth. It's great. It is a thriller page turner. You're, it's one of those books where you're going, oh, I just want to like keep it on the back of the toilet so I, I don't forget to read a few pages a day. That's an idea. My, which is high praise, high compliment. In general, though, if you are a fan of New Jersey or an appreci- appreciator of New Jersey and you don't have a copy of that weird New Jersey hardcover book on your shelf, I know I work there and I'm biased. What are you doing? You got to have the weird New Jersey hardcover book on your shelf, man. You got to do it. I don't know if you do or do not, if I'm putting you on the spot, Nick, but I know you're a longtime fan. I don't know. I, uh, I, do, I have a bunch of them, and, but my thing was always like the regular exactly. like, magazine that came out that was always like my thing. Um, and not that I think it's like bad or anything. I think they're great. I've like probably looked through every single one of them. Um, uh, but yet, I don't think I have it because I was just always, I love- If like, you have every magazine, you don't need it. Well, that's what I mean. Like, And that's always been typical like bathroom reading. I'll have like six or seven of those on top of the toilet and I'd like, you know, go back and just like- Because oh, look, I wrote you know. Weird New York. I'm the listed author. I co-wrote Weird US. Like, It's a big piece of my life, big piece of my identity, but I'm the first to admit, Yeah. Weird New Jersey is a different thing. It's a different thing. And it means a little bit more. If you're out there and you're listening to this podcast- I, the existence of this podcast owes a lot to the fine work of Weird New Jersey. So you better have those magazines in that basket next to the John. Oh man, the best. Or you better have that book on your shelf or both because you want to talk about books about New Jersey that need to be on your shelf. That Weird New Jersey, that first book, I don't care if you never crack open the cover, you are declaring yourself part of something that only New Jersey people on the inside totally understand. That might be the book that I've given as a gift the most times in my life. 
is the weird new trend. I think I've given that book to like 20 people over the years. I think the thing I'm realizing more and more, the, the older I get, the more distance I get from my days at Weird New Jersey. I go, you know what it is about New Jersey people? We are raised to understand that it's a game and the game is rigged. And Weird New Jersey is an incredible, incredible <laughs> look at that in a way, because it's an idea that should not work. These two guys come up with this idea. Let's write about fucking haunted trees. Let's write about haunted trees in New Jersey and make a magazine out of it. And then it blows up. But it ties so much into the type of New Jersey's fierce dedication to underground music. The idea that, nope, we're going to go off the grid. We're going to proudly declare ourselves weirdos. And that magazine existed when that was not as, as much of it. When that word still had some teeth, you didn't necessarily want to be called a weirdo growing up. Um, the whole idea of kind of being subversive, of being someone who pokes the beehive, of being someone who questions the rules kind of relentlessly, those are Jersey attitudes. And the existence of that book speaks to how firmly entrenched a part of the culture it is here. It's not just about ghosts, people who live in the woods, and haunted stuff. It is about all those things, but the overall broad strokes of what you get when you have that book on your shelf is a recognition of like, we have it figured out. We don't buy it. We don't buy into the fucking white picket fence. We don't buy into the idea of, oh, you work hard, you do things the right way, it all works out. We are raised to know this shit is a game, so you might as well take some chances and die on your sword. That's a big part of what Weird New Jersey is. Well said. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think it's time to move on from books about New Jersey. And remember, we want your comments. We want your voicemails with your recommendations, the things we missed. We're now going to talk about the great creative souls who write and have come out of New Jersey, uh, some of whom we've touched on a little bit, others who we're going to go ahead and uh, dive into a little more deeply. I know, Mike, you, uh, you recommended Clockers as your number one choice, and you've also listed Freedomland as a, as a New Jersey-focused piece of uh, Richard Price writing here that you wanted to recommend. Freedomland's another fantastic Richard Price novel, um, heavily focused on New Jersey. The story centers around, uh, you know, what it's slightly fictionalized, but what would have been the abandoned Palisades Park amusement area um, you know, and it digs really deeply into, you know, family and how the stresses of trying to raise a family in New Jersey might make you act in strange ways. So, I mean, Richard Price is just a fantastic writer, like I said before. So definitely Freedom Land's another one that people should check out this summer if you're into crime novels. And since I, I brought up Philip Roth before with Goodbye Columbus, any other uh, favorites there? Any others that you think... Uh, are particularly good for the New Jersey angle. I mean, you said Portnoy's Complaint, which is the classic coming-of-age New Jersey novel. Nick, have you, have you read Portnoy's Complaint? No. That one... Like I said, I'm building my list for this summer. Listen, Portnoy's Complaint, I've, I read it. I think I read it twice. That book is disgusting. It's the one that made him famous. It is, even by modern... <laughs> he wrote that when? In the 60s, I think? And that is believe so by modern standards per, a perverted book even the internet like the internet didn't exist and i still find parts of it he, that is a sex obsessed gentleman but 
it also ends on a fucking punchline in a way where I go, holy shit, to end your whole book on a punchline? That's got balls. But yes, a lot of bus rides from the urban to the suburban. A lot of vivid descriptions of taking different bus lines through Essex County in that. I do remember that. When he's the... I mean, it's important to always complain, but I think this is in... It comes through in a lot of things that Philip Roth work is, you know, that he wrote is he just chronicled a very big shift in New Jersey, right? Where, you know, you, you had like an original wave of, of people that immigrated from all over the world and they, they settled in Newark. And then that second generation there that were people who were Philip's Roth, you know, Philip Roth's age, they all spread out and sort of created the diaspora of people who moved to all those Jersey suburbs. So he's almost chronicling the, the shift of New Jersey city to suburbs and why that happened for a million different reasons. So I think that's another reason why he's, he's interesting to read in that sense. It's a very good first person history of New Jersey. That aspect. And like you said, if you look at like Newark and how everybody kind of like moved away and even like when, the riots happened. I remember because my family was all from Newark and like everybody like, you know, moved out like, you know, uh, away from Newark. My, my take on it from hearing the stories from my family and like my grandfather was like a first generation you know, Greek here, whatever. Kind of like if you weren't out of Newark by the time the riots happened, like I, I don't, I don't know like how to say it the bad way, but like you, Maybe you just came at the wrong time or whatever, but like anybody who was, you know, I don't know, established or establishing themselves, like the goal was to get out of Newark at that, before that point, you know what I mean? So by the time the Newark happened, like the riots happened, my dad was telling me like he had to go down and like rescue like his great aunts and his aunts and stuff because they were just in the the mode of like, they were never going to leave there and like being shot at, you know, being shot at by people on rooftops and stuff like that. But I think like, yeah, like when the riots happened, it was almost like Newark was already like changing. People were, you know, raising their kids and moving out of like, you know, the city and wanting a better life. But yeah, definitely a a weird thing. Definitely interested in reading it. Philip Roth's writing, Goodbye Columbus, one of the things that it made clear to me that I'd never totally understood as a kid, that would have been explained eventually to me. But Roth really makes it clear of like, because I grew up, you guys know that pocket of West Orange I was in, when we grew up, it was all Irish Catholics. It was like so many Irish Catholics. And you, you start to think back, you go, oh, everybody's grandparents, everybody's parents actually was from Newark. And they all moved out of one neighborhood to this neighborhood. Like, And then you look around Essex County, you go, like, Goodbye Columbus makes it so clear, like, oh, like the, the Jewish people in Short Hills, they were like a different subsect of Newark Jewish people and they went there and the more middle class Jewish people went to Livingston and the fancy Italians and this is not something Roth is listening but you start to look around you go like when my family moved to Fairfield you look around it's so Italian you go oh this is where the fancy Italians from Newark went and then when everybody left Newark probably where would it be like probably Belleville was like the not as fancy Italians all went there and, and, and you see just like all these places in Newark that picked up and left together, but then just landed in the same place. And all the families knew each other back then. And everybody went to the same school. And in my, in my background too, everybody went to the same Catholic schools. And, um, man, like he really 
he re- his books like you know are world famous and have won every prize. I think he won every prize in literature except he didn't live long enough to get the Nobel. Wasn't that the thing? He didn't never got it. Um, and you go, man, but I read so many of his books and they feel like conversations that our parents would have with our aunts and uncles, you know, if that makes sense. They feel so real. It's really, and, and, and also like American pastoral, so much of it's set in East Orange and just like so much stuff there. So we're checking out Portnoy's complaint. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of that later stuff too, human stain, American pastoral, all has Jersey stuff in it. Now, Mike D, I did not realize until we were researching this, but you've brought it up a couple times. I haven't read Judy Bloom since I was probably in middle school. I didn't realize Judy Bloom is a Jersey legend. Oh yeah, she's straight out of E Town, straight out of Elizabeth, um, Judy Bloom, and the, to me, there, there, there's a lot of interesting things about Judy Bloom. But the most interesting thing is she wrote absolutely classic books for young children, like Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing, um, Super Fudge. Then she wrote books for for kids on the cusp of becoming teens that, you know, a whole bunch of classics there. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret? We talking about... Exactly. Are, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I remember reading that book. Huh. I remember reading that book and probably being two to three years too young and knowing that I was a little too young as, as it became clear the book was about a girl just, um, dealing with menstruation for the first time. But I remember realizing, oh, I'm not going to ever make fun of any girl who's dealing with this. I'll never make fun of a girl. And and, uh, Judy Bloom, Judy Bloom taught a young man how to be a little more uh, thoughtful instead of being grossed out. Was it school? Was it school assigned reading, or was it like for your interests? No, I remember reading because I liked Super Fudge a lot, which is more the little kid and it's, and, and if I remember that yeah. one, right, it's kind of yeah. Super Fudge is almost like a Dennis the Menace esque like troublemaking kid who won't calm down if i remember it's something along those lines and it, yeah and it's told through the lens of the older sibling who's like why is my brother fudge such a pain in the ass like he's breaking everything like he's hurting the family pet so, yeah. like i can't deal what with this and it's about becoming like a a, a kid <laughs> who can like empathize with other people's feelings like little kids do that they're crazy you got to learn to deal with it i read that during a school year i don't know if it was i think my brother had been reading it for school and i grabbed it when he was done with it and then I remember distinctly it was over a summer vacation and my family was camping and I was like, oh, Judy Bloom, super fudge. That book was funny. Next thing I know, I'm reading about a girl praying to God as she reconciles the fact that she's bleeding once a month. And I said, I, okay, I'm, uh, I'm going to be a little more considerate. So, Mike D, you were saying it's not just the kids stuff, the young adult stuff. I mean, that stuff is amazing and I, I've read it all reread it all in the last couple of years. Here's where the Judy Bloom story, I think it's incredibly fascinating and super New Jersey is, you know, she's written quite a few really amazing adult novels, but there's one of her adult novels that's called In the Unlikely Event, um, which is a great read, um, super fast, um, super interesting. But the thing is, so Judy, Judy Bloom grew up in Elizabeth and in 1951 and 52, there were three plane crashes in Elizabeth. Um, in in that basically like 18 month span, 118 people died. And so Judy Bloom, in real life, Judy Bloom's father was a dentist. He was like one of the town dentists in Elizabeth. And so he was called in by the police department to 
um, basically help identify the victims of these three plane crashes by their dental records. And, and later on, I think she wrote this in 2015. So, so not super long ago, but she wrote this book in the unlikely event. And it's, it's almost like the book is almost a temperature check about the town of Elizabeth and the teenagers and the kids there dealing with three planes crashing in their town in a short period of time. So it's basically how a town and how people process something in the 50s when you're having one awful disaster after another in a very localized area. It's a great novel, definitely worth reading. She's written a bunch of other adult novels that are also great reads, but this one is in the unlikely event is a super Jersey focused book. Um, that talks about something in New Jersey that I didn't know about till I had read this book and researched it, right? Yeah, that right. planes were falling out of the sky in Elizabeth in the 50s. I had no idea. That's, that's the type of thing that I, sh- I should absolutely know about. And I didn't, so that will be high up on the list, high up on the list. Um, who knew? Who knew that that formative voice of my childhood had such a Jersey focus? Now, I do feel like we've mentioned Juno Diaz a couple times. Um, want to just also get this out of the way and say there's a lot of people who are not going to want to read Juno Diaz because he was outed as uh, something of a predatory person towards women in his life. And he wrote an essay revealing his own abuse. And a lot of people uh, felt like that was being written maybe as um, to like vindicate him or to make it like hey, a little bit is- of an excuse. Um, and then, you know, there was a lot of people saying, well, if someone's saying that he has sexual trauma in his life and that he's maybe offering it up in explanation of why he's acted out sexually, that there's actually validity there and we have to, have to start having those conversations. But he probably, um, you tell me, Mike D in the 21st century, you know, better than I do. Hard to think of more people who caught more momentum and critical love than Juno Diaz in as quick amount of time as he did, right? I mean, when Drown came out, that was a a mind-bending book of short stories for people. I don't think... It, 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 people hadn't really written... I mean, he wrote in the vernacular of where his family was from, he used the slang that everyone used um, from from where he grew up. He's from Parlin, um, and 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 I think just people weren't writing those type of stories in that type of language. And I think that's why. I mean, I remember when I read Drowned, I was like, "Oh, I know you. You're you're like the kids that I grew up with." You know, um, he has that really famous short story from Drowned, right? How to date a black girl, white girl, a halfy. Um, and nobody was really saying those things. So I think that's why it was a really honest collection of stories that came out. And then when, um, when Oscar Wow came out, the same thing, people just hadn't really seen anything like that before. So I think, you know, taking a step back from, from any politics, he's just a really honest New Jersey voice in his writing that I don't think anyone else from New Jersey is writing about that experience the way that he has. I feel like I'm going to say something that relates to the classism of New Jersey, which I've, which pisses you hear pisses me off. And like, even in private conversations, when we talk about West Orange, the thing that pisses me off so much is how, how much of that side of stuff just never got dealt with or spoken about. So I'm going to use a phrase that I think is actually maybe a little bit, in that vein, 
but I, I say it with applause because to Jersey people, I think this will make sense. He writes from the exact perspective and with the slang of an apartment kid. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, absolutely. He's an apartment kid. He's the kid from the, he's one of those kids from the apartments, you know, like. It's almost like, you know what, books like that will be like documentation of like cultural historical experiences. And I don't think there's like enough of that. It's almost like taboo at this point to like even talk about, um, not talk about class, but like, you know, being poor and uh, however you might talk to your family and um, cultural like friends different than like white people or whatever, like any other people and people taking it like the wrong way. And it's, it's good that you can still in some format get away with, you know, expressing yourself the way you did when, you know, you were living your life the way you were raised, wherever you were kind of thing, you know? Well, and he, the thing is, right. He's like a, a Dominican kid, just like a lot of kids that we grew up with. And he was the first writer that I read where it was like, he's a Dominican kid. He went to Rutgers and he wrote and spoke just like all those people we grew up with. And you're kind of like, Oh wait, this feels like I know these people, like this is something that I've seen from, from the outside. I think that's why his writing is so fantastic. It's just that honest New Jersey Dominican kid story that you're not getting anywhere else. It is true. Like you read Oscar. I remember reading Oscar Wow and all the stuff about the dictatorship in the Dominican Republic, like fascinating, scary. But then I'm sitting here going, this is like, this is like a kid who grew up in like the part of town where like he's in an apartment, a little close, close to the highway. Like that, that's a phrase. I don't know if other people outside of Jersey, but anybody, at least in North Jersey, will know what I mean. The apartment kids. Your family doesn't own their house. They're in the apartment complex. The apartment complex, it's probably a little too close to Route 46 or Route 10. Like, you're the apartment kids. You know what I mean? Like, you got it a little... Uh, like, you're the people right on the edge of the school district. Like, he's one of those people through and through, and he writes like it. To read about a guy who's going, here's what it's like in Patterson. Here's what it's like being being from the rough edged part of town, but loving comic books a lot and going to not just a state school, but Rutgers. Oof, that is everything. It's, it's every, it's almost like everything to me, to me, I get to learn about the Dominican experience, every other aspect of it. I'm sitting here going, holy shit. Like this is, this person is saying something. These thoughts have been in my head and they let him write them down and he's winning prizes for it. Now, obviously, um, obviously, again, want to be very clear. I understand that there's a lot of people who go, this fucking guy. And I, I understand that. We're right in the middle of that, too. Speaking purely of the writing, though. And also, this is how you lose her. Um, his collection after Oscar Wilde was uh, also, also had some moments in it where I just went, holy shit, man. This is a kid who... This kid could have walked the... He absolutely could have been walking the halls of Western High School in 1997-96. No problem. And that's all he is. And he's not hiding it. Really, really fascinating stuff for New Jersey people. Now, one of the more divisive people on this list. I remember in a college class reading the play The Dutchman. And 
<laughs> it blew my mind. Then you find out Amiri Baraka, true Blue Jersey person. If I remember, Mike, you might know better than I. I believe he was a professor at Rutgers at some point and was fired for being too divisive. And if I remember right, didn't that make Alan, wasn't Alan Ginsberg like an adjunct professor and he quit in protest and support? And then you find out about how Mary Baraka's son is the mayor of Newark now and he's so tied in yes. to the history of Newark and the politics of it. You go, you want to talk about a New Jersey writer, you can't not mention Amiri Baraka. I mean, he's, <clears throat> in some ways, he's the most New Jersey writer of, of anyone on here. I mean, he's a complete product of, of New Jersey. And, you know, I, I think what's interesting about Amiri Baraka is he manages to push people's buttons and he pushed people's buttons for 50 years and he pushed them so hard that people were constantly coming against him, which I think is actually the mark of an amazing writer. I mean, he was the, the poet laureate of New Jersey at one point and I believe, and he basically pissed everyone off so bad. And I think he was the poet laureate under Florio and Florio got so mad that he said, well, I'm going to fire him as poet laureate and the, the way that the, the charter is written is you can't fire the poet laureate. So instead of firing him, they actually passed a bill in the New Jersey legislature to, to eliminate the position of poet laureate in New Jersey, just so there wasn't one. And to me, if you are, if your writing is so powerful that the government is passing legislation to that silence you, people, yeah, the people of influence got to Florio and yep. were like, "You have to do something about this." You like, are who, doing who something right. Who were the people right. that wanted to stop him? Like, well, if I remember right, he wrote. I, I don't quote me on it, but I believe it was after nine eleven. Yes, I think the Jewish community took some major offense to some stuff he wrote. Um. In fact, I'm going to research that just to make sure I'm not misquoting it because it's divisive. It's something like that. No, no. It, 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 long, long story short, he he wrote a, a poem that was in a collection, and and he read it at various things. And you know, to sum it up, he basically was was <laughs> posing the question like, to his opinion, why were all the why were Jewish people like tipped off about the World Trade Center. And so let me be very clear. This is what Amiri Baraka is saying. Like based on his own opinion of like that. Based on whatever his own opinion was. But that that's what pushed that's what pushed people's buttons. Anytime you bring up that subject matter, whether it's conspiracy or whatever, it's like there are open minded people and I think a lot of people just like like keep their mouths shut. But like when you bring up that subject matter, people are so touchy about it that it's immediate like defense mode and like ruin this person, you know? And I think though, if anyone has the right to speak about the subject, it is I, Oof. as I am in the world trade center survivor registry. So Oof, right there. Front row this. seat, man. <laughs> I get a nice, I, I, I get a nice Christmas card from them every year. Still crazy. <laughs> now I, I do want to say that uh, I'm reading up on it now. And when he was appointed, at the ceremony in August of 2002, yes. Amiri Baraka did personally tell James McGreevy, you're going to catch hell for this, uh, saying he might be making... Amiri Baraka himself told the governor, you're making a mistake right now. I want you to know. Um, so he knew. He knew. Um, but yes, he did write a poem um, about 
about 9-11 that said, who told 4,000 Israeli workers at the Twin Towers to stay home that day? Why did Sharon stay away? Who knows why five Israelis was filming the explosion and cracking their sides at the notion? So some people, I think, took offense to that, and I can understand why. And yeah, at that point, maybe the state legislature needs to uh, close the loop and eliminate the position. But I have to say, having read The Dutchman, and Mike, I want you to speak too about, um, you know, you listed Leroy Jones and the autobiography. It's on brand. And... I'm not I'm not endorsing anything anti-Semitic. I will say Amiri Baraka is someone who enjoys throwing a match at gasoline in his writing. And this is I don't think many people would dispute that. Anytime it's weird. Anytime you attack a certain ethnic group, there's gonna be like upheaval and especially um any group of people that are um powerful and influential, you know, they immediately and you're being grouped together, like there's going to be backlash, right? There's always going to be backlash and like nobody likes to be singled out. So what happens naturally, human behavior is like to attack back. So, and you know how it is. We're in Jersey. People hold a grudge forever. You might write something 20 years ago when you were 18. Now you're, you know, whatever. Like you can't have a career in that field anymore because the realism of living in New Jersey and especially Northern New Jersey, if like, you don't play your cards right in whatever industry you're in, you might be like pushed out. So the fact that he's still relevant and, you know, hasn't been completely ruined and still is able to publish is like, you know, something to say about like him and he's like a fighter and he's from Essex County. Oh, that's just my spiel. I think that's right. It especially, I mean, that is, and, and the thing is, if you're talking about books and writing from New Jersey, Amiri Baraka is really important. He's a unique voice for us for an experience in New Jersey, and he's a great writer. His writing is awesome to read. And when you read, I mean, read the autobiography of Leroy Jones, Amiri Baraka, and it's just it's a great story. And he's completely self honest, and you know, and basically, it's a story about I was a beatnik and I got rolled up in this whole beatnik thing. And then I realized, like, oh, actually, the beatniks aren't changing anything. If I want to change the world that I live in and the people that are around me, I've got to go in this different direction. And it's not about whether that's whether you agree with him or disagree with him. It's just a unique New Jersey experience. And I think that's why it's so important to have Miri Baraka on this list. You can't. You can't claim to know about New Jersey unless you read Amiri Baraka. I mean, that's my my own personal opinion. But and he certainly made people angry many a time. And uh, that, cause, right, I feel like between that and the stuff I had, like yeah. the stuff with Juno Diaz, also Philip Roth. Let's not forget too, Philip Roth had an ex wife who wrote a book about how awful it was to be with Philip Roth. Like how many people? How many people bought that? I think like who was like, oh, I gotta, I gotta read that. Oh, I think a lot of people. I mean, Nick, read Portnoy's complaint, and you're you're gonna go, yeah, I bet, I bet. I bet that being married to this guy can't always be easy. But I hope my ex never writes a book. That's all I can say. Listen, in the world of literature, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, we're living in a stage right now where I, I'm in I'm in comedy and that's a, that's an industry where people go, oh, there's all this shit that's been happening behind closed doors and it's finally coming out and it's gross and it's 
fucked up. I think literature is a similar thing. I mean, even this list right here, one of the things people are going to say rightfully, we have talked about very few women writers tonight, and that's a fucking bummer, but it is also a lot... Uh, literature is another field where I feel like it historically has been very, very dude driven and a lot of critical praise has been sent that way. And, you know, probably the three writers on here who have gotten the most critical praise, Philip Roth, Juno Diaz, Amiri Baraka are all people who have been met with massive controversy as well, which I have to imagine in some psychological way is also extraordinarily New Jersey of like people who you might say are truth tellers to a degree where they never back down or people who get in their own way. That's another aspect of being a New Jersey artist, right? Like all sorts of divisive stuff. And I think the, I think the whole publishing industry in the world of literature is another one that's traditionally been a boys club where there's a lot of ways that, you know, men have gotten power and been able to do fucked up stuff. And, um, I just want to put it out there. The best writer of the 18th century, uh, no debate, hands down, is Jane Austen. And the best writer of the 19th century is, hands down, Charlotte Bronte. Right. So I'll just, I'll just throw those bricks out there. And am I, also, am I also correct in remembering that you have an Emily Dickinson-themed tattoo? I have Emily Dickinson's face tattooed on my arm. So let's also be clear about that. That when we're talking about New Jersey, it happens to be that some of these people are fucked up. I'm very happy we talked about Judy Bloom. I'm very happy that we mentioned Janet Ivanovich. Um, but when you're talking about some of the like award-winning critical praise people, yeah, they're also they've been some there's been some people in there where there's been some fucked up shit about them too, which is both very literature and very Jersey too in its own way. In in relationship to that, like these people are all artists, right? So artists are always a little bit kind of off, and like you might agree that like you you might not be you probably de develop your gr grammatical skill, but I think you're either like kind of like a storyteller or not. And that's like an art in itself. So they're artists, they're a little bit strange and they're people. And I think the realization is like, when you get older, you realize that everybody's messed up in their own way. And whether you're in the public like spotlight or not, like you're probably going to do something that is, you know, what normal people would think is like weird or, you know, you're in a place where you have a different perspective. When I think it, it, the whole point, and I mean, this is my take on it is I think the whole point of art, writing, music, whatever it is, is that is a place to explore and work out things that you can't work out interpersonally in real life because they would hurt other people. That's my personal take on it is that is your space to work these things out right and that's what art is it's to like share yeah well if you spark that dialogue you know what i mean like so now you've made it you brought it out a lot of people don't like what they want to hear because they don't want to acknowledge whatever and hey if you don't talk about stuff which nobody's been talking about things for years now you have all the stuff that started happening now you know with people being outraged where oh i thought we dealt with this issue well we did but we didn't completely deal with it and there's still, you know, these prejudices and whatever about class and everything else. And, you know, people didn't talk about it for long enough and it was forgotten. And I also just note too that one thing I'm very happy about is that we are entering an era where, um, you know, sure, artists are artists. I'm an artist. No, I'm a fuck, you know, you guys have known me since I was a kid. Like, I certainly, my brain does not always function in a way that makes the most sense to, uh, 
the ma- mainstream people. It, even even in my world of comedy, I think a lot of people are like, "What the fuck? Why? What am I watching? You on public access, getting your ass beat by a, beat by a kickboxer? Like, what the fuck? This isn't comedy. Even even within that world, I'm regarded as a weirdo. But I am happy that there's. Um, I'm happy we're turning a corner where uh, actions have consequences and we can recognize that too. And I don't think that that's like a big ask. And the thing about, I think you could maybe say um, about some of the people who get critically lauded is they get protected from consequences because they're making a lot of people money. And that's where capitalism's fucked up. And that's the part of it that I don't like, which is like people who learn how to get away. And I think this probably applies to a degree to like Philip Roth and Juno Diaz, where we go... And they're making a lot of people a lot of money, and that's probably how they got away with shit, and that's part of what pisses people off. And I go, and I've seen that in comedy too, you know, Louis C.K. They're every, I probably even shouldn't fucking say this, but like every comedian had heard stories that something had happened. And then I remember when it all came out in the New York Times going, oh, like it's 10 times worse. That's where it got really, that's where it was really fucking devious, was that. It's like it was reoccurring. It wasn't like one thing or no. It's like it's like yeah. It's like you start to hear oh something really fucked up happened with Louis and these two girls, and everybody had kind of heard that, and then you hear a version of a story, and then when it comes out like fifteen years later, what really happened? You go oh it was actually like fifteen women, and even those two girls, it was like significantly worse than the story we told. So they kind of like told us they they spread a story that was kind of bad to smoke out the story that was really, you know what I mean? To, to smoke screen the story that was really bad. You sit there, you go, oh, and that one, that happened 15 fucking years ago because a lot of people are making a lot of money, you know? Yeah, it was hot for a long time, right? And that's, that's the fucked up part is you go, man, like, yeah, you're allowed to be a fucked up person. You're allowed to do a fucked up things. You got to face the consequences of those actions. It's when... That's that's why I'm glad culture shifting. That's why when people talk about this cancel culture nonsense or like the world is too PC, I kind of roll my eyes at it as an artist because I go, it's just actions have consequences. It's just actually you can say say whatever the fuck you want. There's a part of me that respects Amiri Baraka. Yeah. I I'd, let me be very very clear. I am not a believer in the idea that uh, the Jewish community was warned 9-11 was going to happen. I I I don't see why I would believe that. No, <laughs> but Amiri Baraka refused to apologize and he was the second ever poet laureate of New Jersey and the program was like four years old and they said fuck this we're done with this there is a part of me that goes I do respect the fact that you put some shit in your art that got people mad and you went okay and I'll deal with the consequences it means that you're going to remove me as this as this uh, critical darling and this post okay I'll do like but yeah, okay, you'll fucking you'll you'll crash and burn the whole thing to stand by what you believe. I think what you believe personally sounds a little bit fucking insane. Sounds crackers to me. But yeah, there's consequences. Eat the consequences. It's the way people are protected from consequences. I'm glad that's stopping. And then some people go on these consequences are overzealous or things aren't proven accordingly. Right. Okay, well the pendulum needs to swing. The pendulum was way on one side for fucking centuries. So if it swings a little too hard right now and then it can land in the middle great but yeah man interesting i don't know how we got there that wasn't in the outline anyway let's talk about william carlos williams and then uh one other one other book of new jersey note that needs to be talked about then we get home i do quick quickly want to mention though that 
for years, I wanted to buy a food truck that sells soup and call it Philip Broth. Because I think that is the best idea for a New Jersey food truck. F-I-L-L-U-P Broth? Philip Broth. Philip Broth. Yeah. A pun? Done. Right? A pun? Oh, and then do all the uh, do all the soups have to be like soup puns of equal quality? That's the only thing. That we, we'd have to work yeah. those out. Like, uh, what would it be? like? American, American Pasta, Pasta Fuzzle. Fuzzle. That's a great one. That's a great one. That's a great one. <laughs> oh, I'm so bad at puns. My friend Drew would be crushing it right now. What rhymes with bisque? Portnoy's bisque. No. Porch, no. Porcini's complaint. Oh, so good. Porcini's complaint. Too good. <laughs> Too good. The great American... Uh, Yankee bean? No, I don't know. Who cares? Okay. William Carlos Williams. I have to say, this topic came up and I went, oh, that's one of those people I don't know about. But then I was also immediately able to realize the only poem I have memorized in my head is So Much Depends Upon the Red Wheel Barrel Glazed with Rainwater Beside the White Chickens. I never forgot that poem. The second they taught it to me, I had it memorized. A beautiful poem, you know? What makes that poem beautiful, Mike D? It's... Imagery, it, it, because when he's telling, like, it's so beautiful because it's like it immediately puts you in a time and place of real life, which is so much depends upon the red wheelbarrow. It's like fuck if we don't have this wheelbarrow, we're gonna be in deep shit because we've got to move things around. So it immediately roots you in a life that w- people like us growing up in the modern century don't understand like who needs a wheelbarrow it's like well you need a wheelbarrow you've got to move all these things around your yard your farm your garden and i think that's why that poem is so powerful because it just puts you in a time and place that we don't understand which is what great writing does it's like oh wait i do understand why your wheelbarrow is is important now and i think that's why i mean that's the whole thing about patterson right is he that entire book of poems he's explaining to you about this this place that we don't have any knowledge of but when you read it you're immediately like oh like i understand what you're saying like i understand what people in patterson used to be important to them right a wheelbarrow used to be important now for us it's something you throw on your lawn because it looks like a nice decoration but back then it was you know almost a matter of life and death right that's the (laughs) the difference i also think and i'm not going to claim to be an expert i'm william carlos williams but i'll say to be able to have things as simple as red wheelbarrow and the, you know, I stole the fucking plums from your icebox. To have things that are that simple and a handful of words and then also bust out Patterson, which is like a multi-volume epic poem, right? It's like this thick, you know. To be able to do both of those, you're pretty good at writing poems, right? You're pretty good. There's my critical I mean, summation of William Carlos Williams. He's pretty good at writing poems. Pretty good at writing poems. Which I think is a correct one. William Carlos Williams, pretty good poem writer. Now, who were his contemporaries when he was living out in Patterson, being inspired by Patterson, New Jersey? Because that town was already not cool. That wasn't a cool place to be. I mean, Ginsburg, but was a kid. Um, so he was kind of like the pre-beats Oh, he was way earlier than that. I mean, he was like 19th century. I mean, he died in the 60s, but... He was born um, in 1883. Wow. Yeah, yeah. He was he was way earlier than, than any of those folks. Um, 
I don't even know that he doesn't have any contemporaries that I am familiar with. He was, uh, let's see, he was the son of an English father who was, his father was born in England, but raised in the Dominican Republic. His mother was Puerto Rican and, uh, that had major, the Caribbean culture of his family home had a big impact on him. And yeah, he, uh, it's funny because he, he had his primary and secondary education in Rutherford. He went to school in Geneva. He went to school in Paris. Wow. He went to the Horace Mann School in New York City's fancy school. Fancy. Fancy yeah. to this day. He got, he got into the UPenn Medical School. Um, he did internships at the French Hospital and Child's Hospital in New York. He went to Leipzig to study pediatrics. But then meanwhile, at the end of the day, we remember him. He moved into a house on Ridge Road in the east side section of Patterson. And that's what we remember him for, writing poems in east side, right? That's the same neighborhood that uh, lean on me. East side, high, fair, east side, high. Used to, they used to call, call me, me Crazy Batman. Joe. Now they call me Batman. What, a, what an accomplished person. But I, he was a doctor the whole time. He's a family doctor in Patterson and a poet the whole time. I guess his friendships were Ezra Pound. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, Ezra Pound. Um, Hilda Doolittle. HD, baby. HD. She's a great, great poet. What a fascinating dude. There's something to be said about, is he maybe one of the original? I've always loved that there's artists from New Jersey where it's like, Okay, punks exploding at CBGBs. How fucking badass are the Ramones? How weird and artsy are the talking heads? Blondie is the coolest person on earth. And then over the river, like, kind of right after that, like, you got the Misfits. And the Misfits, they're part, they're part of this conversation, too. What the fuck is going on with the Misfits? There's a running trend with New Jersey artists of like, you got Philly, you got New York, and then there's always some outlier where people go, and that's the even more real deal shit. I have to feel like William Carlos Williams must have been one of the OG people of that. There's a, I can't imagine there was much of like a booming artistic poetry movement in Patterson even back then. No, and I think, I think more people li- like read poetry then. Was that more of a popular trend at that time period when he when those guys were writing yeah it was i mean he's kind of on the edge of it but definitely like pre-radio people would read poetry as like entertainment at night that was a thing (laughs) that would happen um and then that like kind of faded definitely with radio and then then obviously with with tv but yeah people read more poetry i mean now nobody reads poetry one of his later poems was called jersey lyric it was a response poem to a 1960 painting by Henry Niece, also called Jersey Lyric. I feel like maybe we can sum up the William Carlos Williams section with the me reciting Jersey Lyric, because clearly this will be very Jersey. Um, this is how it, what it says. View of winter trees before one tree in the foreground, whereby fresh fallen snow lie six wood chunks ready for the fire. Well, if that's not fucking Jersey... I don't know what. No, I don't know. Um, smarter people than me will have to break that down. That's pretty Jersey, man. Pretty Jersey, man. It's a bunch of wood ready for the. We're wood. all wood chunks by the fire. 
That's the Jersey life. We're just me, you, me, Mike D. Bond is used as three more wood chunks ready to jump in the flames, baby. All depends how long you burn for, right? Boom. That's exact bang. <laughs> That's it. How long do we burn for? I'll also say this too. Did you guys see that Jim Jarmusch movie, Patterson? Definitely not. I have not seen that. I was ready to fucking hate that movie, and I loved that movie. I thought that motherfucker nailed it, and I thought it was on target, and I looked it up because he's a real, like, you know, very hip filmmaker. Adam Driver, very hip choice these days. I go, how are you going to make a... And Adam Driver plays like a modern poet in Patterson who really likes William Carlos Williams and writes poems but doesn't publish them. And he goes and he sits by the Great Falls and writes and he's a bus driver during the day. Kind of like a very clearly modern take on William Carlos Williams. And I got to say, that town, there's something about Patterson that I've long been obsessed with and really in love with. Because it's the idea that that town is so burnt out by industry and Alexander Hamilton had this idea to turn it into like the industry hub. And then you see what happens now and it's fallen apart in so many ways where there's so many good people from there. And right in the middle of it, you have like an actual fucking natural miracle. Like the Great Falls, you go and stand near the Great Falls. It's overwhelmingly fucking cool and beautiful and it's in the middle of that town with that history. It's ridiculous. There is something really special about Patterson. And I'm going to make a prediction right now. I'm going to make a prediction right now and say that in the coming years, there's going to continue to be an upswell of Jersey creativity. And in the same way that Asbury Park went from this abandoned, scary place to like this artistic hub, I just think Patterson's going to become that sooner rather than later, too. It's too close to New York. It's too fucking. It's got too. It's not cheap to live there, though. It's not like, like super affordable. In Patterson, really? It's it's it's, and it's dominated by, um, uh, like cultural uh, strongholds. And here's a funny thing because you talk about the falls. I'm hanging. I'm working with this younger surveyor. He doesn't work for us, but he's like intrigued. So we we engage in conversation. Um, Puerto Rican kid grew up in Patterson from when like he was born. And he was joking. I was like, oh, he's like, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's like, I'm going out with this girl. I was like, well, where are you going to take her? To the falls? And he looked at me and started laughing. He's like, why would I bring anybody to the falls? I was like, well, it's kind of like a cool place. But to somebody who grew up in Patterson, it's just like, you just don't go to the falls. You know what I mean? I have taken many dates to the falls. When I lived in the city and I had a car, I said, look, I'm a Jersey guy. I've always kept a car. My number one value is road trips. That's like, I'm funny. And road trips. That's like my, the greatest things I have to offer as 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 a potential suitor. And I, I, a couple dates where I'd end a late night down at an early morning as the sun rose. If we stayed up all night together, I got to show you something. You'll never believe this is so close. Yeah. And I go to the falls. But then... <laughs> Reach down. I tell you, though, because I was friends with my wife a long time before we got together. And uh, I'll never forget a very, a very shameful moment where I said, I got to show you this place. She goes, is it that waterfall in Patterson? And I go, yeah, it's the best. She goes, well, you've already told me that's like your fucking move to bring girls there. So why don't you fucking save it, asshole? <laughs> so I got caught on that. Oh. My question is, what's what's the... Plus one, Hallie. What's the take when you're driving there? Like at a, a pre-dawnish hour even? like. Here's the take. People go, oh, this seems kind of shady. I go, it is. But there's something... This seems a little rough around the edges. It seems a little confusing. It seems a little hard to sort out. And I go, oh, that's true. But deep down, right under that, you, you slice through this confusion, maybe even this trepidation, and there's something like undeniably powerful and beautiful at the heart of it. Kind of like your boy, Chris Gethard. <laughs> A little hard to sort out. 
maybe a little rough around the edges. Not the best grammar, not the most well-read, but there's something in there, that beating heart, Great Falls. I would say, is there anything more fucking Jersey than the Great Falls being in the middle of Patterson and it hasn't fucking bounced? Like, I'm telling you, man, it's going to become some sort of fucking hub of something. And I hope it's something that still contains all those different communities in Patterson, all the great Middle Eastern food, all the great Hispanic communities. But I also hope that it becomes... It's just baffling to me. I, I know people... There's people in my neighborhood now, and I'm not cast in shade, but these are people who maybe grew up a little wealthier. Who I say, have you taken your kids to the Great Falls yet? They'll go, what is that? I go, the fact that we have that in New Jersey and people have lived here their whole lives and they don't even know it exists. I go, you're missing out, man. You know that uh, I, missing out. I celebrated getting my second vaccine shot by going to the Great Falls. That's the best. As you guys know, I got my shot and immediately drove to the Great Falls. Every time I go there, I always have this desire to like swim in the section on the lower part that is like get you know, down there baby next to the like the power plant and the water coming down get down there i'm thinking about it but it's kind of far to get down there like i'm always like how do you get down i wonder there? if you're allowed to canoe down there if you could go up against the current if it wasn't too strong get up on the banks that way and hoof it oh man i think you gotta get past that one little dam and then yeah. you can get up to it probably Maybe if you had the Incredible Hulk paddling your canoe, you could do that. No, I, I'm not saying you could battle against the power of the falls, but I wonder if you could get close enough that you could then walk those trails instead of trying to climb down the wet rocks, which would be insane. We've been going very long tonight. But we're given a lot of valu valuable information about literature in New Jersey. We have. I wasn't sure if we were supposed to bring a book tonight, so I brought a book. Oh, Nick, what's your book? No, this is a really, this is a great book, and it is uh, right up my nerdy alley. It's the, here, I'll show it to you, I guess. The Glacial Geology of New Jersey. Oh, no way. Mike, Mike T's eyes just got as wide as I've ever seen them. And I've, and I've seen Mike T when we were in college. What drew me to this, because... <laughs> Mike D might remember this book. It was at the uh, Montclair Bookstore. And since I've always been like a, a map guy, it has great pictures of like the geology of New Jersey, which is like really strange. But they have this one where you pull out and it's like four feet long and it gives you a cross section of the like entire state and explains how the glaciers moved through the state and how it deposited different soils in like different areas. It was like, I know that's like real nerdy crap, but. That was the most Jersey thing I could find. And it was written in 1902. Love it. I was going to say, you can tell that's like early 19th century by the font yeah. because that's actually been been actually printed. Like, you know, I know a little, know something about books. And I fought with them on the price on this and they would not come down. That's also another great call. What are the great independent bookstores in New Jersey? The Montclair Book Center, always been an amazing place in our lifetimes. There's a whole bunch. You got to support the indie people out there, man. Oh, yeah. You have to buy your books not at Amazon. There's a, in Maplewood, words, in Maplewood, there's a bookstore. I actually did an event once in their basement, and they're great people, and they make a point of hiring um, a lot of, they, they, they hire a lot of workers who have autism and, and other things along those lines, and they're great, great people. Uh, and there's, support your indie bookstores. Support your indie bookstores. Order all these books from New Jersey bookstores. Please, everybody. And let's not forget, closing thought I would say tonight, Springsteen's autobiography is fucking awesome. It's great. Fantastic. It is a well-written book that will make you happy to be from New Jersey. And not like, yeah, it's not like nostalgia Jersey Springsteen leaning into it. It's like so much of it's his relationship with Catholicism 
and with his family leaving New Jersey and him, huh. him pondering what it is to be born in freehold and make your whole career about fleeing and wind up in Colts Neck. Like it's, it's a great, great book and a, and a fun read and will make you love him more. Um, which is already hard cause he's, he's a golden God amongst humanity as it is, which is already impossible, you know? Um, although if we are going to shout out, uh, there is a lovely, extremely wonderfully messy independent bookstore on main street in Metuchen, which I would recommend people also support. I love it. So if you happen to find yourself at the Northern edge of Southern New Jersey, <laughs> you should, you should go down main street in Metuchen. Yeah, those, and, those places are like and, disappearing left and right anyway, you know, it's true, man. Amazon squeezing them all out, but they're special places. And, uh, yeah. As, and, they're the ones where you find the book of maths from 1902. They're the ones, Montclair Book Center, man. That's where you used to go. You'd see live readings. Weird and Jay would go do their things there. Find the local places, the indie places. That's a great bookstore. It is. It's one of the great ones. Be followed around by the staff because they think you're going to steal something. Yeah. When, when you walk in with your West Orange Varsity jacket, Nick, and they don't trust you because they're those uppity uh, Montclair people, just like Philip Roth called out. They're like, football players don't <laughs> read. He's here to steal something. And then you go buy a book of glacial geology. And their minds are blown, and you say, West Orange, motherfucker. We're never what you expect. All right, everybody. Remember, 973-780-4660, what needs to be on our New Jersey reading list, because we want recommendations, too. And uh, thanks so much for listening. I hope that this leads to some sort of book club where we all read together and discuss on the Patreon. Have a great night. Philip Broth forever. <laughs> Brothmobile. <laughs>